Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Hey everybody, we're back for another episode of Space Junk. My name is Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and I am really excited today because we are going to be talking about citizen science with Dr. Pamela Gay, someone who I don't think needs any introduction because she is all over the interwebs, especially when it comes to astronomy outreach and communication and citizen science and all of these other really great things. But I don't know if you guys know, listeners to our humble little podcast here know that while we are dedicated to getting you motivated to going outside in your backyard and looking up into the night sky and trying to figure out what's going on as the stars and planets and the moon and the sun swirl over our heads, you did you guys know that you don't need any equipment at all to do citizen science, to do astronomy? Yes, your eyes are great. You can go out and see constellations, and you can see some of the bigger and brighter objects out in the sky. But if you've wanted to ever participate in science and actually getting research done, you can do that through uh, a what I guess has become known as citizen science. But basically, it's where professional research astronomers put data out online, and they make it available to us, and we can go to their websites, and we can help them in a variety of ways. And that's what we're going to talk about today. What are the different ways you can get involved in citizen science? And it is directly related to amateur astronomy because a lot of people, amateurs and professionals alike, make use of some of these tools. So we're going to be talking with Dr. Pamela Gay about this. But before I do, i got to introduce my co-host, Dustin. It should be out in the interweb somewhere. Thank you, Tony. Yeah, this is a big day. We've got Dr. Pamela Gay here, right? That is, uh, that's a big deal. I've been a yeah. fan of Astronomy Cast for as long as I've owned a telescope. Probably the day after I got a telescope, I started looking for information on astronomy and immediately found this one. It's the largest podcast of its type. And uh, Dr. Pamela Gay and Fraser Kane do an incredible job with Astronomy Cast. And I've been a fan, been hooked ever since, as most of the staff here at OPT are. And so, so this is big. And Pamela, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on today. This is a real pleasure for us as well. And I got to just, just second what Dustin said. I mean, you do any kind of searches and you want to find out about some of the bigger astronomy programs out there and your name definitely comes up. So I'm really glad to have this opportunity to talk with uh, you about, well, I guess citizen science. So let's start. What, what are some of the things you're involved in, and what do you think we sh you should know or let our listeners know uh, about citizen science and what you're working on? Well, I, I think the most important thing about citizen science is anyone out there who wants to be part of discovering our universe has the capacity to do things that make science that otherwise couldn't be done possible to be done. We, we have this problem right now where there are so many terabytes of data raining down on our heads from space telescopes that are coming to us from the great ground-based observatories that we as professionals, there's just not enough of us in this world to get through all of the data 
and find all the results that are there in the ones and zeros waiting to be made. And so I, as someone who attracts clouds, as few other human beings attract clouds, have learned I am not meant to be an observational astronomer. And while I haven't really come to peace with this, I have found that by diving into this treasure trove of amazing, untapped data from spacecraft and by asking a few hundred thousand of my closest friends on the interwebs to join me, <laughs> we can map out other worlds and find the cool places to scientifically explore and the safe places to land that spacecraft that's going to do the exploring. So this sounds a little bit intimidating, though, when you say that. So to give this a little bit of a, a little bit of context, Pamela, you're a professional astrophysicist, correct? Yes. And so taking that into consideration, I mean, most people can't say those words in a lifetime, right? Yeah, but but all of us have to start somewhere. And and well, yeah, I'm a PhD astrophysicist. I'm also just a dork on the internet, and. So much of what we do in science just requires eyeballs. Computers aren't there yet. Computer vision does things like mistake me for Natalie Portman, which is an amazing compliment to me and not so much for her. But but the human eyeball can look at photos of the moon and go, oh my gosh, that's that's a volcano. That's a rift. That's a crater. And software can't do that yet. And if we want accurate maps of other worlds, we need humans out there doing their best imitation of American Vespucci or however you pronounce that fabulous mapper of America's name. We need to be out there doing that for the moon, Mars, Vesta, all these other worlds. And with the website I work with, CosmoQuest.org, this is what we do. We, we take these images and we create the tools that allow other people to come in and map craters, just holes in the ground on another planet. And then we turn that into science. And I think that's, that's kind of what I was getting at, is trying to draw the line between exactly what you do and how it's possible for someone that doesn't, I mean, it's got to be what, 14 years of schooling for you to do what you do <laughs> or more, right? And then- yeah. And then from there, it's it's like, okay, I get that you can do that as a professional astrophysicist, but how do I, just sitting at home and having an interest in astronomy, how do I get involved at a level that actually matters? The, the cool thing is, all it takes is pattern recognition skills. Okay. This means that you can go to CosmoQuest.org, you can pick a planet you want to help us with. Mars and Mercury are the ones we need the most help with right now. We have an interactive tutorial that will show you what the different features look like. They'll help you pick out this is a boulder, this is a crater ejecta. We'll show you what the different things look like. Mm. And then after you've gone through the tutorial, we just give you what are sometimes pretty and what are sometimes, wow, that world has been bombarded hard with space rocks. We, we give you these pictures that you get to enjoy while you map out what's in the pictures. And then we partner with other people like me that went to college for a stupid amount of time. And we work on the complicated statistics that I can't easily teach you with an interactive tutorial. 
but we can't do the statistics until someone does the mapping. And and in many ways, we're asking people to do the stuff that once upon a time would have been that first step in an undergraduate getting involved in doing research. But there's just not enough undergrads out there to get through all the data. So I'm I'm asking everyone out there listening to to come be my undergrad. And, you know, I'm going to sit in podcasts like this one and I'm going to go on twitch.tv and I'm going to do everything I can to be your professor and teach you everything you want to learn. Now, the first thing I heard of when this initiative in this modern era of citizen science and getting getting online with computers and websites and doing classifications of various types prior to that. Citizen science, the most prominent ones that I knew of, the programs that I knew of were things like the American Association for Variable Star Observers. Uh, you could actually go out with your telescope and estimate the, the brightness of a variable star, make your own light curves and send them in, and scientists would use them. This was way before the internet. Now, uh, one of the first programs I had heard of was Zooniverse that was started with Chris Lintott and, and others. I actually and, and I'm sorry, that. I did not know you were a part of it. So you know all about Zooniverse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it was, it's big collaboration. Uh, they started with a science case. They, like you say, human eyeballs are still much better than computers at pattern recognition, although I think that gap is probably closing. The what They had a science case, a science question they wanted asked are answered with the Zooniverse classifications. Is this a spiral galaxy? Is this a barge spiral? Is this a, you know, elliptical? What kind of galaxy is this? And then they went forth and took that data to write their papers with. Does CosmoQuest have an a priori science question in mind? Or do you, like you say, put together the statistics first and then ask questions of those statistics to make papers out of? We we actually have a science question that is based on all those statistics. With the moon data that we're looking at, we we have two different science cases that we're working on. The the first one, which is where we started out, is how old precisely is the area around the Apollo 15 landing site on the moon? And then the secondary question was can we use the data from citizen scientists to train a machine learning algorithm? With Galaxy Zoo, that was the first citizen science project that went viral. There had been Stardust at Home behind, before that that had been working on trying to find dust particles that were captured by the Stardust mis mission in Aerogel. It wasn't really pretty pictures, kind of difficult task. Galaxy Zoo, super easy, super beautiful pictures, went totally viral. And then from there with Zooniverse, we went on to doing a whole myriad of different science questions. And where CosmoQuest split off was we're taking on the science questions where you need a lot of training. And it turns out things like galaxies we can now solve with machine learning algorithms. They've actually been able to completely replicate researchers out of UCLA what was done with Zooniverse using machine learning algorithms. Now, unfortunately, computers are still totally confused by changes in sunlight angle, soil texture, soil color. All these different things change the way the surface of a world looks. So, oh, and, and things like shadows too, right? I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It completely confuses the machine learning algorithms. So, when you're training the machine learning algorithms, you have to sample a really diverse set 
of features. You have to look at craters in dark soil, craters in light soil, craters with the sun over here, craters with the sun over there, craters with the sun everywhere. And this takes a whole lot of data. And this is where we're looking to say, okay, we know that we need more data than one scientist can produce, at least within the budgets of what we can afford for one scientist to do before we run out of money. But if instead we ask volunteers to map out all these different parameters and combine all of their data, can we then use that instead to train the machine learning algorithms? And and this is that next big thing that we're trying to do. That's that's very interesting because it's uh, yeah you're you're teaching the machines how to make the pattern recognitions themselves by using all these statistics. And with every world, we're going to have to do this over and over again because it turns out each world, the imaging machines that we're using are just different enough. The conditions of the bombarded surface are different enough that an algorithm trained on the moon isn't going to work on Mercury. So we kind of have our hands full. With Mercury, we have a completely different science case. With Mercury, we're trying to figure out if you can statistically separate out which of the craters are created when an asteroid hits Mercury. And because it's essentially bedrock at the surface, when it gets hit, it sends boulders flying in all directions. So every primary crater that an asteroid makes on the surface of Mercury leads to a myriad of secondary craters. And you have to uncouple which craters are created by asteroids and which are secondary craters if you want to try and understand anything about Mercury's surface. So we're trying to figure out if that's even possible. And so where does the data that's being analyzed, where does it all come from? Different spacecraft. The data that we're using for the moon comes from a lunar reconnaissance er orbiter. For Mercury, we're using images from Messenger. With Mars, we're using images. data from two different images that are on Mars, two different imagers on Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, HiRISE and CRX. We have Dawn data of Vesta. We're going to be bringing in Ceres in the new year. And the thing I'm most excited about right now is our software is going to be part of how the OSIRIS-REx team finds that rock they're bringing home from Bennu. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, that is. So I want to get back to the moon for just a quick second, though, because you you had your science case. You told me your science question. Uh, do you have a science answer yet? How old is the landing site at Apollo fifteen? We we I I have to admit uh, that was something that we had our preliminary answer a year ago, and I don't remember the <laughs> answer. Okay, fair enough. Well, I guess I would like to know then how, in a more general sense, how can you tell how old something is by looking at craters? What information do crater impacts give you about the age of the surface? Well, in in general, they give you the relative ages of different areas. But with the moon, we can cheat. and, And we have in the past gone and picked up rocks and brought them home. And so the actual age for the Apollo 15 region is set by the rocks that we brought home, 
But we need to then tie that to a perfectly precise counting of the craters around the Apollo 15 region and then measure to see, okay, are there variations from point A to point B? And those variations, when you count craters, reflect, oh, this area has been exposed longer than this area. The way to think about it is if you go outside when it's just started snowing, you can initially see just a thin scattering of snowflakes. But if like the garbage cans had been out, when you move those garbage cans, that area is going to have fewer snowflakes on it because it was recently exposed. Well, on the moon, on Mars, recently exposed doesn't mean someone moved the garbage cans, but it might mean a volcano went off and filled in all the craters in that region. So that's a fresh region on the moon. So just like you can see where cars have been parked, how long different cars were parked in different places in a parking lot by where there is more or less snow during that slow falling, big puffy snowflake storm with craters where you have more craters. That's an area that has been exposed to not snowflakes, but falling rocks. And the longer it's been exposed, the more craters it's going to have until eventually it's so cratered that we can't tell anything because we, we call it saturated. Now, the nice thing is you can saturate with the small craters, but the giant rocks tend to fall out of space much more rarely. For this, we are grateful because the dinosaurs lost their lives, but we didn't. I, for one, am grateful so for that fact. Yes, I, I'm very I am as well. <laughs> uh, so you just count the big craters when the little craters are saturated. And you can figure out this is younger, this is older, just by how many rocks have had a chance to fall out of the sky and destroy that part of the world. <laughs> You know, okay. I never thought about it until you until you just brought this up, but the moon is an interesting case because we have rocks from the moon, right? So it gives you a chance mm -hmm. to test your testing procedure as well. Have have you done that? Have you seen, you know, against measuring against the age of the rocks you know you have here, have you done photographic testing and seen if the two line up? Yes. And and what was awesome was we were able to take, we know this area is older because it has more craters. We know this area is younger because it has less craters. And we had estimates of, okay, so we're going to assume that rocks fall out of space at a mostly constant rate, which means that this area is this much older than this area. And we could test, was the rate at which rocks fall out of the sky actually constant? Was it changing with time, which means that things fell out of the sky faster at one point in time than they did in another by gathering up rocks from all over the surface of the moon. And we didn't just do this with the Apollo missions. The, the Soviets did a bad job at getting humans there. They kind of didn't. But they brought back a ton of rocks. And I mean that kind of literally. All with robots. And so there's all of these places that were sampled by robots, all of these places that were sampled by humans. And 
using all of these different laboratory measurements of exactly how old is this rock, according to counting up the different kinds of atoms that have decayed in different ways over the history of our solar system, by by counting up atoms, getting the absolute age of these rocks from different places, we can then put our cratering history into a calibrated usage. And we're now at the point of just fixing our measurements. Because it turns out if scientist A measures Apollo 11, if Apollo 15 is then measured by CosmoQuest and Apollo 17 is measured by these other people, all those different people have different biases. And it turns out if you use a whole bunch of citizen scientists, you get a more accurate result than you use you do if you use any one human being. Because one human being is going to get distracted and go get hot tea or coffee. <laughs> but 15 citizen scientists working together are going to get an accurate result because, yeah, one of them got distracted here, another of them got distracted there. But if you assume all the mistakes are unique, and all the right answers are shared. You just look for things that are marked by multiple people and you can get at a real result. And we compared our scientists, our citizen scientists to eight different professionals. And we found, yeah, the professionals compared side by side, kind of, yeah, their results don't match. But take the group of the professionals and the group of the amateurs, and it's a 1.01 1, 1 comparison. It's wow. the same thing. Wow. That, that is incredible, actually. And it makes perfect yeah. sense. I mean, you're averaging out the mistakes. You're averaging out the bias. So are, how sure are we about this lack of bias in our crowdsourcing measurements? I mean, I get that we have... By getting a lot of statistics on a measurement, you get rid of extrema, you get rid of the person who has always got this one bias and always sees certain patterns no matter what, and they, that kind of smooths everything out. But there are human biases, which I... I wonder about all the time. Back in the day, the people looked at the first images of Sidonia uh, on taken by Viking, and everybody saw a face on Mars. Uh, that was a clearly not shown in the data because a higher resolution image got rid of that bias. So that kind of thing where human beings see patterns where there may not necessarily be any, is that a problem or is it just solved by statistics? There, There's two very different questions tangled together in that, and they're both awesome questions. So the first <laughs> thing is, do human beings as a whole yes. have this thing where where we consistently screw up in the same direction? That's right, because of our biology or whatever. And in order to answer that question, we have to figure out how to model craters and model the surface of the moon well enough theoretically that we can get a purely theory-based crater measurement from artificial algorithms, and, and no one has figured out how to code that. What I can tell you is we took eight different professionals. We had them look at several different kinds of surface on the moon, and we found systematic errors, one human being to another human being, across these different data sets. This is a published paper, um, Robbins et al., 2015 in Icarus. And, and so, yes, there were variations from one human being to another. But then we took all eight of those pros and we grouped them together and we got the combined aggregate result. We then took 
all of our volunteers and we took those same areas or we took one of those areas and we chopped it up into a bazillion different pieces. We gave each of the different pieces to a different group of 15 humans. We aggregated that data together the same way. And when we compared how did the pros as a group do to how did the amateurs do as a, as a group, overall, it was that 1 to 1.01 comparison. But in comparing the nuances between the two groups, we found that for like your run-of-the-mill average, not too big, not too small crater, exactly the same across the two groups. A little bit more scatter among the amateurs, but the the aggregate result that what is the radius, where is the center, same between the two groups. When you start looking at the really big stuff, the amateurs are like, yeah, I'm not sure if that's a valley, if that's naturally occurring, if that's a crater. I just don't know, so I'm not going to mark it. So they tended to screw up more with the really big stuff that's hard to identify. On the other side, though, with the little tiny craters, it's as though the pros were like, and I'm done. I'm not going to mark any of these. There are too many little tiny craters. And the amateurs were like, I see this crater and I will mark this crater. <laughs> so with the small ones that are super easy to see, those were marked left and right way more accurately by our amateurs. Not way more. They were marked more accurately, statistically speaking. Um, so there are differences in how that trained professional who in some cases has 50 years experience doing research based on counting craters. Um, we do see some differences at the big end and the low end that are driven by confidence and exhaustion. <laughs> but the overall result is the same science result for both. Okay. So it sounds like this is a really robust way uh, to get a lot of uh, measurements that would be relatively hard to do what, what would be hard to do uh, any other way. I mean, you really exactly the days of the lone astronomer sitting in a dark room looking at his data that he took over a telescope that night before, though, that's gone. I mean, now we've got to have these much larger efforts to get some science done, right? Exactly. There, There is and there always will be those times that you sit there at the telescope and you're like, oh, wow, I'm using Keck to observe 46P Vertanen. And you get amazing results in the moment. But there is so much science that we never even imagined doing in the past where we're now looking at the surface of the moon and of Mars in such high resolution detail that we can see insight sitting on the surface of Mars and we can see the trails of footprints left across the moon by the astronauts before I was born. We can see those things. And when you have data at that high of a resolution, suddenly cataloging everything in your image is way harder than it is when you're just looking at that one awesome comet. <laughs> All right. Well, let me ask you about the software that you're using with CosmoQuest. You said that earlier in the podcast that they are, and this is a point of pride for you, uh, rightfully so, that they are going to, Osiris Rex, the mission that is going to an asteroid yeah. to land on it and grab a piece of it and bring it back. Where they land and what they grab, will be, uh, they will be using your software to do that? Is that, is that yeah. what you said? Yeah. Yeah. What 
what what are that what is that software telling the probe? <laughs> or is that so, proprietary well, and you can't tell me? <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's an intermediate step. I I personally I know myself well enough. I hope to never write software that runs on a spacecraft. That is more stress than I wish to to have. So our our software is processing software. It's uh, called Citizen Science Builder. The lead developers on it are Corey Lehan and Tanner Buxley. I just forgot the last syllable of his name. Tanner and Corey are my two lead developers. Um, and um, they, uh, the, the software takes in these amazing mosaics that are put together by the spacecraft team, chops them up into small pieces, and has all of the image annotation tools to allow members of the research team, their students, their colleagues, we're going to need vast numbers of people going through these images and very quickly annotating this is a hazardous zone. This is a crater with this radius. This is another crater with, not crater, this is a uh, boulder with this radius. This is another boulder with this radius. So what we have developed is easy-to-use annotation software that can be used by people distributed all over the planet because it's web-based. And on the back end of the software, it automatically puts all of those results together, combines them together to get that aggregate result. And we have a data output pipeline that delivers basically MySQL database files that are exactly what the mission team needs to figure out, okay, this area is hazardous. This area has the right density of rocks. Ooh, this is where we're going. So hang on. Is this happening live as the thing is going down? You've got people? Uh, no. Wait, it's no, no. It's uh so the reason that it's rapid is is uh there's only so much time in the mission's life. So there's there's this timeline of spacecraft gets all of the data, mosaic is produced, mosaic is delivered to the software, people around the world go through map out what's in those mosaic images. And and then you get to a these are the sites we're looking at stage. You get better data. You start doing the mission planning and figure out orbitally. And and there's a whole variety of different criteria that luckily I'm not responsible for knowing all of. Um, but what are the places that meet all of the exact all of the precise criteria. So we only have a short period of time between mosaic has been gotten and we need to figure out what are the candidate landing sites. It's yeah, but not to the extent done... that those that information gets disseminated, this is kind of real time, real time-ish, isn't it? Well, I mean, it's it's zippy. We'll go with it. Okay, zippy, not real time, but but definitely no. the mosaics get made. They get sent out. Citizen science uh, scientists are on hand. They're categorizing, and boom, out comes some out. See some MySQL yeah. tables, and then scientists look at those MySQL tables and go, "Oh, we maybe want to stay away from that spot there." Uh, so exactly. So exactly. that's pretty quick. It's it's amazing when they first came to us with this. It was like, yes, yes, I want to do this. This is terrifying, but yes, we shall do this. Well, it's exciting. Yes. Well, that's a great way to get involved in that mission. 
And and we are literally finding what are the scientifically interesting spots and the safe places for the spacecraft. That was like our slogan when we first launched in 2012. And it's true. We we are doing the thing. That's we are amazing. Doing the thing. That is so great. Well, tell us more about CosmoQuest. You've been you you've been around for how you said since 2012? Yep. I think I remember we, you initially starting. I think that's when we were together in South by Southwest. It, yeah, it I think you and Nicole uh, were there, yep. and I, uh, you guys were both involved. Uh, it's I think you were just starting out, weren't you? We we launched January one of two thousand and twelve. We we hired Nicole in that May as our postdoc. Nicole Gallucci, yeah, the sorry, noisy yeah, astronomer. Gallucci, I should have said her last name. And we went down to South by Southwest that year. We we talked about how to get people engaged in doing science. Our first projects were working with the New Horizons team to find Kuiper Belt objects. We did not find Ultima Thole. It has the wrong orbit to have been in our data. Um, but we did find two other Kuiper Belt objects with enough data that we published the results with all the citizen scientists' names on them. And... Um, we, we've been going ever since. That January 12 grant that we got allowed us to do a whole lot of really amazing things. It uh, carried us through. It was meant to be a three-year grant. It carried us through. Um, we, we had some hard times. We had other funding that came in from the various missions. And when sequestration hit, we, we lost about half of our funding overnight. Um, yeah, that was Go the uh, that was the budget uh, <laughs> efforts that Congress had laid on the government across the board. Yeah, and just everybody. Yeah, everyone. Cuts money. Everyone across the agency had to cut thirty percent. And and the thing is, when you have to have an agency wide thirty percent cut, you can't exactly go, okay, we're going to cut thirty percent of our heating bill. No, the heating bill is going to be exactly the same no matter what you do. So when you're done figuring out what are the spacecraft operating costs, what are the facilities operating costs, what's left to cut is the grants. And and we got cut about 50% back that year. And we reached out to our community. We did two, we called them Hangout-a-thons on Google Hangout on Air. And we were able to keep our project going until in 2016, we we got a mega grant. It was actually called to build up CosmoQuest, to build new infrastructure and do all sorts of shiny, awesome things that we've been working on trying to build. And we're just getting to the point of being able to launch a bunch of stuff that it took us time to develop. Um but uh, unfortunately, we're now facing not sequestration, even though there is a government shutdown looming. I know. God. Um, <laughs> what, uh, no, unfortunately, this time we, we got word back in August that with the James Webb Space Telescope cost overruns and with a variety of policy changes that have been taking place, that there was the possibility that our funding might face cuts again. But instead of just being 50 percent this time, it's 100 percent. Oh wow! So, yeah. So funding is cut entirely for CosmoQuest. Yep. And so, what's the plan here, right? Because I mean, obviously, it's doing huge things and needs to continue. And it's not the first time that funding has been cut for CosmoQuest, but you were able to reach out and get help, and um, things carried on, and then it actually grew from there. So, facing the challenge now, what's what's the next step? 
Well, we're we're doing a two pronged approach this this weekend. Unfortunately, it's a holiday weekend, but this was this was how long it took me to get all of the approvals. Um, I I work for the Planetary Science Institute, and we have all the accounts set up that we're gonna. Well, I'm taking Amanda Palmer's lead, and I'm saying we need help. And we are doing a hangout-a-thon once again. This time we're doing it on Twitch.tv, twitch.tv slash CosmoQuestX. We're going to be streaming for 40 straight hours. And we're trying to raise $60,000 by the end of the year so that I can make part-time salary for all of my staff for the first six months of next year. No one's going to be full-time. Everyone's hours are cut but it's enough to keep the lights on. And as my way of contributing, I'm only going to pay my salary out of what grants were able to bring in. And I am applying for grants. I was on two proposals that went in last week. I'm going to be reaching out to funding agencies and saying, hey, I have this thing. We've shown that we can be successful. Will you Will you support what we're doing? And I'm going to be reaching out to foundations and singing for our supper, however we can do it. Um, It's one of these things where my goal in life had always been to work with people to do the science. I'm a variable star astronomer by by initial training. I, I worked with the American Association of Variable Star Observers, people whose data goes back to the 1800s and I used that data in my first ever first author publication I believe in citizen science I use citizen science unfortunately right now I I have to say I I also need the citizens to fund that science and Mm -hmm. any of you out there who've ever said astronomy space science education it deserves more funding can can you make that real yeah, and so how how do people do that? Because I, this community is one that blows me away every single day. The astronomy community in general, and so I have no doubt that people will be interested in helping, especially something this important. But what does that look like? How how do people help? It's as simple as going to hang out a thon. So telethon, but hang out instead. Hangoutathon.org. And there's a big old donate button that will take you to streamlabs.com slash CosmoQuestX. Um, but it'll give you more information and help you understand what's going on. Um, the donations go through PayPal. We're running it through that particular interface uh, because with our Twitch Hangout-a-thon, it gives you a chance to post a message on screen. So if you remember when we were little, all of those PBS telethons, all of those Miracle Network telethons, well, we're doing the modern age version where an animated GIF pops up on screen where you don't when you donate money. So this is your chance to help us celebrate. And just to make it interesting, if you show up and you you watch everything that we're doing, all 40 hours of content, um, we're going to be periodically to celebrate every $100 mark that we make, which is a whole lot, hopefully. Um, we're going to be given the dog's treats so you can watch happy dances of an 11-week-old puppy and a very enthusiastic Australian shepherd. <laughs> but it's 40 hours of science <laughs> for science. I 
think this might still be going on when we post this podcast, but if it's not, uh, if this, and, and if you're listening to this podcast after the Hangout-a-thon is over, that doesn't mean you've missed out. You can still go to, Co- no. yes, you can still go to CosmoQuestX.org, right? Or what's the website? So, so we, we have this weird problem where even though NASA has cut our funding, we aren't allowed to ask for donations on our NASA site until January 1st which is when we don't have any money anymore. Oh. And if we don't have money by then, the lights turn off. So um, going to CosmoQuest X, there's absolutely no signs of anything wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is irony. Um, so so all of the information, we created a special site just for this, hangoutathon.org. And we also have everything on our Twitch stream. So twitch.tv slash CosmoQuestX. So those two sites have all the details. Okay. Twitch.tv slash CosmoQuestX. Just scroll down below the video player and hangoutathon.org. Okay. And that is uh, how you can get involved right before the new year starts, but after the new year, there's also ways uh, you can get involved and give money as well. So I just want to, I want to say that because I, I want people who listen to this podcast and who want to help know that there's still hopefully a way that uh, they'll be able to give something by then. So and this is yeah, until after the new years. <clears throat> this yeah, is after until the new, the new years. years. Yes. Well, those sites will stay up. And then after the New Year's, we will finally be able to put donation links on CosmoQuest.org. And we're part of a 501c3. So if you're looking for an end of year tax donation or tax deduction, um, we are tax deductible where laws allow through the Planetary Science Institute. That is uh, important to be uh, – that way your your donation can be considered on your taxes if you itemize and things like that. So that's really great. That's really cool. At, at the end of the day, people can do amazing things. The, the fact that we as human beings have the capacity to understand our universe at all is something that just amazes me every day. We, we can – we can use math and physics to figure out the temperature at the center of the sun, even though we can't really fly all that close to it because it's too hot and we can't fully understand why it's so hot so far out in the corona. There's so much we don't understand, but the fact that we could understand any of it this at all is amazing. And the fact that anyone who wants to contribute can just plop down on their sofa with a laptop and an internet connection and help discover new things about our universe. Make real that, contributions. That should be empowering. You can make real contributions. It's not instant. It takes time. You have to learn, but it's amazing. I am pretty much in awe of how this system comes together, too, with the respect to the amount of data that we've got and the kinds of citizen science opportunities that are out there. With with respect to CosmoQuest, will your emphasis as an organization always be pretty much on these topographical science questions of planets or will there be other like you mentioned the sun uh, will there be some maybe i can think of a lot of solar science uh citizen science projects that would be really cool like for example measuring cmes and, and all kinds of other things but would is cosmo quest primary focus will it always be in the in the planetary realm with things like crater classification and topological feature uh 
measurements, things like that? No, that that's actually just kind of where we got limited by accident. Uh, we were tied to the W first mission, and we were going to be doing some precursor science for that. But unfortunately, with the um, politics behind W first's potential cancellation, our project was canceled. So. We're hoping that W first gets resurrected and our plans to map out dark energy get resurrected along with it. So we have the capacity to answer any image-based question. It just happens to be right now we are focused on planetary surfaces because that's where the funding's been so far. But the sky isn't a limit and neither is a rocky surface. Well, let, let me just ask you a personal opinion, a question about the where astronomy is heading for the future. Can you give us some insight as, as an astronomer, where you think the big questions are going to lie in our future? Is it things like the nature of dark matter or the expansion rate of the universe? Or is it things like is, you know, the, I'm, I'm enumerating some of the things I think are important, uh, but I want to get your opinion here too. Uh, or things like, you know, is life ubiquitous in the universe? Is it easy to make life from non-life? Uh, these are, what are your opinions about the future of the big questions? What, what do we still need answered going forward? I, I think what you just hit on is that segregation between planetary science and astrophysics and cosmology. There's really two different realms of study. One where you have atoms more complicated than hydrogen and helium and in fact have minerals. And we still don't know how planetary systems are formed, but Alma is out there right now, day after day, sending us back this amazing wealth of data that helps confine our theories as we work to understand when do the Jupiters form? How is it that so many of them migrate into the centers of solar systems and become these hot Jupiters that we never expected to see? There's, there's this whole group of people that are going to be working to understand the details of our solar system. Where, where is there life other than Earth if there is? Then there's going to be the groups of people working to study planetary formation and extrasolar planets orbiting other stars. And while this dovetails into astrophysics, it really is its own separate science that uses a lot. It's a lot less plasma, a lot less quantum mechanics, and a whole lot more um, stuff sticking to stuff and forming bigger stuff. Uh, I'm showing my astrophysics background, but planetary science is where you start getting into biology and chemistry and much more literally heavy molecules than, than you get in astrophysics. And when you start getting to cosmology, you sort of stop worrying about normal physics in a lot of ways. What is dark matter? Don't know. What is dark energy? No, even less. And this is where we start getting into the realm of particles that don't interact the way normal stuff interacts, where we start ending up with words that don't describe the stuff your table is made of non-baryonic matter, things that we can only detect in high energy collisions in 
colliders like CERN and in deep underground pits of fluids like the Kamiokande Observatory in Japan. These are two totally different areas of science. And I see people clustering up around what happens in the star systems and what is happening that allowed the star systems to ever form out of the subatomic particles and invisible stuff that makes up the majority of our universe. And in between is the galaxies that I kind of love. The galaxy. Yeah, I, I, I guess I, it's important. That's an important distinction. You're right. I mean, if you think about it, 20 years ago, maybe 25 now, exoplanet science wasn't even a thing, right? I mean, we've only just over the past quarter century figured out that there are stars around other planets or planets around other stars. And certainly astrobiology is a new science as well. So these new sciences are being born as our equipment gets better, as our eyes get better at looking at the universe. And so these new things pop up. And I suppose you're right that they are kind of delineated between big stuff and little stuff, stuff that bangs together, makes bigger things uh, are sort of a classical approach to some of the sciences out there. And then the esoteric stuff like dark matter. I used to think dark matter was a thing. Now I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that there isn't something about gravity we don't understand at, at big distances. But it used to be as, oh, they're going to find it. They're going to find the particle and we're going to be okay and we're going to know what dark matter is. And we're not finding it. And it's being very stubborn. Now I'm not so sure. Now I'm like, well, hang on a minute. <laughs> Maybe I was too quick to judge all this. And so, um, but life in the universe, that's my biggie. I think, and I want to get your opinion, Pamela. I'm going to put you on the spot here. I'm going to, but, but I won't okay. do it without going out on a limb myself. I think life in the universe is not a given. I do not think it is ubiquitous, nor do I think it's inevitable that it will start from uh, any kind of planet or any kind of place it can. I think life is hard. And so I don't think it's everywhere in the universe. And I'm not surprised we haven't found any. Uh, answer to Fermi's question, where the hell is everybody? <laughs> I think it's 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 a perfectly plausible scenario to be in. What are your thoughts on that? And so I I'm sideways from that. I I think that intelligence, that complexity is hard to get to. But I would not be surprised to find things at the level of tardigrades at the level of extremophiles just about everywhere and and so i think that fermi's paradox you're right getting intelligent life complex life is hard but i want to believe that those little tiny things that refuse to die on the outsides of spacecraft are kind of everywhere. Um, but time will tell. And the, the thing that gets me is that time will probably be within our lifetimes unless we make mistakes crossing the street. This, this is the kind of stuff that upcoming spacecraft are going to, one generation of probes at a time, begin to develop the abilities to look for. And if there are tardigrades on Mars, 
we just might be able to find them. Although we may not know if they're ones we took there or not. Yeah, that's also another issue entirely, isn't it? Whether we're going to these places like Mars and just contaminating it <laughs> so that we have uh, our own, bringing our own germs over there, uh, which would, I guess, be a good argument for panspermia, which would bring these life as, you know, these life for bacteria, organisms traveling through space is probably pretty easy to do. But I don't know. I just I, I've heard that a lot lately. I'm hearing what you're saying. That very thing is that, yes, maybe uh, smaller forms of life are ubiquitous, but not necessarily intelligence. There's a lot that has to happen in order or at least with a lot of fortuitous things uh, to line up before you get an intelligence uh, that's capable of producing technology or something like that. And so that would be a lot less common, uh, if not impossible, uh, which would you know, beg the question, why are we here? But the, the overall assumption I'm hearing a lot lately from astrobiologists is the same as what you just outlined, that it's not maybe so hard to make life from a primordial ooze. It's not going to be a spark of life like what you would imagine. Suddenly you have this primordial ooze full of organic compounds, none of which is alive. And then suddenly, boom, there's a spark and there's something alive there. It's not like that. It just gets gradually more, the chemistry gets gradually more complicated until you have something that metabolizes and reproduces and does whatever life does. So, yeah, I've got, well, that was a great answer. I'm glad I, I'm glad I, I put you on the spot and you weren't glad you weren't so uh, reticent to <laughs> step out with me on this. No, it's, it's one of those what if questions that we can't answer but we can have hopes. And as long as we acknowledge that until we have evidence, it's, I believe there could be extremophiles everywhere. It's a belief, yeah. but yeah. it's, it's one I want to be true. Yeah. And I would love it to be, you know, other civilizations out there with building Dyson spheres and, and, you know, whatever they're building. And, and I would love that to be true, but I just, I think it's equally plausible that it's not. And so at least right now, based on what we know, so you're right. There's a lot we have to learn about life and the future of the universe. Uh, I guess I would like to close out this podcast with with a question, or I'd like to ask you for some advice. And I'm, I'm talking specifically okay. about young people who are thinking about astronomy as a career, whether they're boys or girls, uh, regardless of their ethnic background. What advice would you give to somebody as a practicing astronomer, someone who's out in the field doing the work, who is thinking about becoming an astronomer or, or maybe majoring in astronomy in college, what advice would you give them? It's going to be hard. It's going to be harder than you ever possibly imagined. But if there's a place in you that just aches to try, that aches to to try and understand things that no one has ever understood before and gets excited sitting down and reading the news, reading the articles about our latest discovery, then, then go for it. You're going to end up coming out the other side with skills that if, if I wanted to be a programmer, I could double my salary today. I don't want to be a programmer. I want to be an astronomer. So I'm an astronomer who programs and, and I love what I do. There are very few careers where you get to do the kinds of things that we do in astronomy, where we're 
literally answering the fundamental questions of where did life come from and how is this all going to end? But there's so few jobs. There's so many people who haven't learned how to work and play well with others. It it won't be easy. You're going to want to give up so many times. And if you realize, you know, I could be happy as a mechanical engineer, get that mechanical engineering job and know you can build telescopes or you can build cities. If, if you realize, hey, I could be happy doing electrical engineering, get that electrical engineering job and know that you can either build the detectors, build the spacecraft that we use, or you can go off and get a job in industry and build the next Tesla. There's so many options out there. And in astronomy, I hire everything from artists to, I've worked with musicians, but mostly I work with computer programmers. And you don't have to get that 10-year degree in astronomy, the bachelor's, the master's, the PhD. You can get any degree you want. You can follow any passion and still find a way to be part of what we do as scientists. Yeah, and so you're making an important distinction between becoming an astronomer and getting a job in astronomy. And exactly. I give the same kind of advice. I think you're absolutely right. The PhD route is a very, is one that's fraught with a lot of stress. It, it is hard. It is it, it is a there's a very well-defined career ladder that one needs to follow. However, in the same way that you are an astronomer, that programs, I am the inverse. I am a programmer that astronomes. <laughs> Wait, well, you don't, you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yes, yes, well I said. Uh, yes. <laughs> and so I, I am a software engineer who I was able to write programs for cameras, uh, telescope control, image processing, data, data management. There's a lot of different things that a person can do without a PhD in astronomy. So I think that's really good. Um, all right. Well, I think we're out of time. And I want to thank uh, our guest, Dr. Pamela Gay, for taking time out on the eve of Hangoutathon. So go to hangoutathon.org if you're listening to this podcast now, right away. Go there now and check out what they're offering and help them out. Give them some, uh, you know, just keep CosmoQuest and the Citizen Science Initiative going. And uh, I don't know, Dustin, what do you, you have anything to add to that? Uh, no, just before we break this, I did want to congratulate you and Fraser both, Pamela, on Astronomy Cast getting the Parsec Award. Oh, that's right. Yes. Congratulations. Yeah, I just saw that. And that is Thank you huge. so much. Yeah, congratulations. That's a big deal. And you definitely deserve it. So it's uh, amazing stuff. You guys are we're, rock stars. We're super proud. We we try. You're you're right up there with us, Tony. Yeah. We're we're glad to be in this good company. <laughs> you guys uh, are the, you set the set the bar really high, and I couldn't be happier for you. So, congratulations, definitely. Thanks for bringing that up, Dustin. Yeah, I think we I think we close it out, and it's uh, twitch.tv uh, forward slash CosmoQuest X is where it is. Pamela, is that right? Twitch.tv slash CosmoQuestX. And that X is where you find the science. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, on behalf of my co-host, Dustin Gibson, and our guest, Dr. Pamela Gay, I want to thank you all so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk was produced by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California, in partnership with Deep Astronomy. Please send feedback and questions to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.